Welcome to the Lady Preacher Podcast, a podcast for the progressive Christian, where we talk about an all-loving God, an embodied Christ, and an ever-moving spirit. Dive right in as we wrestle with what it means to live out our faith in the world. Welcome to the Lady Preacher Podcast. I'm your host, Pastor Kelsey. And today we are tackling a conversation and a topic that has been taboo, I think, especially in the church and in our culture for a really long time. I know I myself first came to this particular topic with a lot of questions and hesitation, some preconceived notions, and probably some judgment as well. And I've I've learned a lot over the years. And I hope that this conversation allows you to do the same. If you are finding yourself feeling similar, having preconceived notions or your own hesitation about it, I pray that you take some time to take a few deep breaths and focus on opening your heart and opening your mind. I'm so grateful to our guest today. Gabriella Degolia is a young professional, a writer, a multimedia artist, a spiritual seeker, um, and she has found a home in Middletown, Connecticut. And she's here today to talk about polyamory and consensual non-monogamy. This was such a powerful conversation. I feel like I learned so much. Even my understanding grew deeper as we talked. And I appreciate Gabriella coming on and sharing so vulnerably of herself and of her wisdom and knowledge and everything that she has learned as well. I first got connected with them when they did a paper called Polyamory and Consensual Non-Monogamy in the United Church of Christ, the Next Frontier of a Radically Welcoming, Open and Affirming Denomination. With a title like that, that paper really intrigued me. And I, I learned so much from Gabriella and her research. And we will certainly link to that paper in the show notes. So if you would like to read it, you can as well. But I asked Gabriella to come on and talk to us, especially as we're in this series on relationships, about the different ways relationships can look, romantic relationships in particular. And so she came on to share about polyamory and consensual non-monogamy. And she'll define those terms for us as well. A little bit more about Gabriella. They identify as a white, queer, disabled, non-binary woman and uses both she and they pronouns. As a member of the Plum Village lineage of Zen Buddhism and the United Church of Christ, as well as contemporary witchcraft communities, Gabriella brings various spiritual traditions together within herself. They are passionate about blending activism with spiritual practice and has assisted numerous communities in furthering social justice from a spiritually grounded place. You can find more about her work at consultingwithmuses.com and at Gabriella Degolia on Instagram. And of course, we are linking to all of those things in our show notes so you can find them easily. Y'all, I am so grateful for the ways that this series on relationships has opened up so many really important conversations. And this is no exception. Again, I hope that you come to this with an open heart and open mind and ready to learn and experience something new. So I'm I'm thankful for you're here. I would always welcome your feedback. And without saying too much more, I now welcome you to learn from the wonderful and brilliant Gabriella Degolia. Hi, Gabriella. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. 
Absolutely. So I have given our folks a little briefer into who you are, but I would love for you to share um, from your own words. Who are you? What do you do in the world? What do you love? What do you do for work and not for work? Um, Tell us about yourself. Yeah, thank you for the question. Um, so my name is Gabriella Degolia. My pronouns are she and they. I'm a young professional, a former seminarian, a writer, an artist, and I live in Quinnipiac and Wongong territories, which is commonly referred to as Middletown, Connecticut. And I'm a contemplative Christian and a Zen Buddhist who works as a tarot reader right now. Um, I'm also a budding spiritual director and just someone who loves to create beauty through writing, art, ritual, and uh, spiritual practice. I love that. Can I ask, I feel like I've come across this a few times, but the Zen Buddhism mixed with Christianity, how do those two things mesh and pair for you? I actually often say that I uh, became a Christian thanks to uh, my Zen my Zen teacher, uh, Zen Master Thich Nhat Hanh, because uh, I was living in one of his monasteries when I was 26, uh, I think I was 26. And while I was in deep practice of Zen Buddhism, I started to have a very deep yearning to connect with the divine. While there, I brought this up with a number of the nuns, and they said that Zen Buddhism often helps to clear away the debris on our spiritual path and help to reveal deeper yearnings that one might have. And for me, that ended up being a yearning to connect with God and Jesus in the way that my, my ancestors have. Um, I've come from a long lineage of Christians and, um, it was very surprising to me. I wasn't expecting that while living in a <laughs> Zen Buddhist community. But, um, for me, the contemplative practices that I learned in a Zen Buddhist context were very much doorways for me to open myself up to a connection with the divine. And so I, I, I like to say that I'm, I'm Christian because I'm Buddhist and I'm Buddhist because I'm Christian, like the two really, blend very well together for me. Um, not to say that they are the same. They have, you know, distinctions and are, are different traditions. Um, but I do think that there's resonance between them and the practices um, between them can complement one each other. I love that. And I love the imagery of clearing away the debris on the spiritual path that like, as soon as you said that, that I love metaphor and like an image came right away of like walking this path and like the debris being cleared and oh, so beautiful. I love that. So we are in the middle of a series on relationships and you recently did a research project. Was that in 2020 that you did this research project? Yeah. Yeah. It was a, a, for a class actually when I was in seminary last spring and I'll, I'll go into more details about that in a moment. So this research project was on polyamory and consensual non-monogamy. And I want to ease into this conversation a little bit because I know some of our listeners, as I'm sure many folks will, um, might come to this conversation with a sense of like wading into the unknown, um, that they may enter into it with some hard questions. Maybe there's some judgment, preconceived notions. Um, and I'm wondering if you have words for us as we begin um, to help really ease people into this conversation and and create an opening. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for inviting that. Um, so, so as mentioned, um, I think one of the reasons that you invited me on this podcast is because I did this research project that um, centered on consensual non-monogamy and polyamory within a United Church of Christ context. And this was for uh, the United Church of Christ History and Polity class, 
that is uh, a requirement for people who are pursuing ordination in the UCC, which I was until just recently. And part of my interest in uh, doing this research project was because of my own experiences with polyamory and consensual non-monogamy, but also realizing more and more in my conversations with other people who had similar experiences that there wasn't a lot of open discussion, not a lot of resources related to this topic. And um, uh, so so that's part of what drove me to want to do this research. It went from a five-page paper to a 40-page research paper, and it just kind of took on a life of its own, which was really lovely. As you said, a lot of people, when they hear the the concept of consensual non-monogamy, a lot of alarm bells go off, you know, red flags come up. And given that we live in a context in which non-monogamy is almost always associated with cheating and, and infidelity, um, uh, which is non-consensual non-monogamy. It's actually, I think it's very understandable for people to have, you know, judgments come up because it's like, why would I want to talk about a topic that, you know, involves betrayal or involves, um, you know, um, reneging on commitments that I've made, you know, sometimes in a very sacred way. And so I just, I just want to acknowledge that those reactions are understandable given the training that most people have had to think of non-monogamy as only and ever equivalent to cheating and infidelity. Um, having said that, just inherent in the name consensual non-monogamy, it's important to distinguish that from cheating and infidelity. And so I just want to invite listeners who might be having those alarm bells come up, like, why are we talking about this, this thing that's like not okay? You know, it's like I, I, I offer an invitation to hold those emotions with a loving tenderness and to um, also open up to the possibility that maybe the ways that we have been taught to think of non-monogamy are, are limited, sometimes even inaccurate, um, and that there are ways in which non-monogamy can be practiced in a way where all the parties involved have offered their inform, informed consent to that process. Yeah, yeah. I, I have a strong sense that the word consensual is really important here. So can you define this for us? Can you define consensual non-monogamy and polyamory for us? For sure, yeah. And I think to do that... Um, one of the easiest things would be for me to just read the couple paragraphs in the research paper that I did that that include the definitions of both of those terms. Um, and, and also I can give you the link to this paper because it's I self-published it online and anyone who listens to this podcast will be able to have access to it if you put links in your show notes. Absolutely. Um, so from this paper, I, I write, um, polyamory comes from the Greek word poly, meaning multiple, and amor, meaning love. Wikipedia defines polyamory as, quote, the practice of or desire for intimate relationships with more than one partner with the informed consent of all partners involved, end quote. So polyamory, and this is me continuing in my own words in my paper, polyamory is a type of consensual non-monogamy. So consensual non-monogamy is an umbrella term that encompasses many forms of intimate, sexual, and romantic relationships that are not bound by monogamous standards. This can include polyamory and other types of committed relationships with more than one person, but it can also include encounters such as um, swinging or any number of open relationship structures. And um, I'll just close with a quote from the uh, American Counseling Association's website, um, which is as follows. Uh, Consensual non-monogamous relationships are those in which all partners involved agree that having romantic and or sexual relationships with other people is acceptable. And this is not to be confused with non-consensual non-monogamy, which occurs when individuals commit infidelity or cheat on a partner with whom they have agreed to be monogamous with. Yeah, that's really helpful. I appreciate 
um, you adding on in your own words, that piece of um, the committal that happens in polyamory versus consensual non-monogamy being the, the umbrella term. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. And, and oftentimes when people use these terms, they'll often use them interchangeably, um, which um, isn't necessarily wrong, but um, technically other forms of um, relationship structures beyond polyamory do fall within consensual non-monogamy. So again, it is that umbrella term, but a lot of people, when they're talking about it in interviews like this or in articles, they might use polyamory and consensual non-monogamy interchangeably. Absolutely. And you said kind of in your definition that some of the other forms beyond polyamory are swinging or an open relationship. Uh, are there others um, or things you might want to define within that? Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, a lot of people like to say that there are as many ways to be consensually non-monogamous as there are people who are doing it. Um, so, <laughs> so there are, there are all sorts of different um, structures that people engage in. You know, some people will have one primary partner, you know, they'll call it a primary partner and then other partners who are um, so important to them, but, but it, it doesn't take up quite the same level of importance as that quote unquote primary partner. And then there are other people who engage in what's called like relationship anarchy, where there's no sense of hierarchy between partners. Um, and there's a lot in between and beyond those, um, those types of um, agreements and structures. Um, but again, the, the primary thing to hold in, in one's mind as we're talking about consensual non-monogamy is that we're consensual. And um, the fact that when people engage in these kinds of relationship structures, there's an informed consent that everyone is like, okay, like I agree to be in this, in this either hierarchical or anarchist or whatever type of relationship structure. Um, and yeah, I'm doing it of my own, of my own agency. I appreciate your use of the word agreement in the same sentence, really, as the word consensual, that it really is every person who is part of this is saying, I agree. That was helpful for me. You know, I, I think consent can sometimes feel like this I don't know. I don't know how to explain this, but, you know, just a, a word we use, but that doesn't have a clear image to it. But like, I have a clear image for the word agreement, you know, mm -hmm. like I, I understand consent, but it might be a little foggy how that actually happens. Whereas agreement to me feels super, super clear. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. I agree that especially in the same age, consent can be thrown around a bit willy nilly sometimes and the, the term means different things for different people. And so I, I do agree that like agreement saying like, I agree to this can be just like a much clearer <laughs> way of, of denoting what's going on. Can you give us a little um, history and background on polyamory and consensual non-monogamy? You know, I, my sense is these are not new things. This isn't just like millennials deciding, you know, to change everything up. Right. Um, I think we get blamed for a lot of things, <laughs> but you know, um, how have these relationships been a part of the human experience and how have we seen them evolve? Yeah. Thanks for the question. Um, and, and I'll just say that I'm not a historian by training. So like, I, um, I don't have a background in like diving into, uh, like historical documents regarding consensual non-monogamy and polyamory, but I can say without any hesitation that it is not a new thing. Um, there have been many people who have studied this topic um, across different eras, across different different locations around the globe, and have found that it was practiced, for example, in ancient, ancient Greece and Mesopotamia. Um, so it's, it's and obviously people wouldn't have called it then consensual non-monogamy. Like it, the the terms would have not 
I don't want to like impose our modern terms on what people might have been doing in like ancient Greece, um, but there is evidence to show that people um, were engaging in practices that were not bound by monogamous standards, um, even all the way back as like ancient Greece. So it's definitely not new. Um, it's definitely not millennials just like doing a thing, um, and uh, it's it's also a lot more common than a lot of people realize. Um, multiple studies have been done. And for example, in the U.S., the studies that have been done to um, uh, try and, and see how many people engage in consensual non-monogamy, um, the numbers hover around 21% of the population have engaged in some form of consensually non-monogamous relationship structure at some point in their lives. So that could include polyamory. That could also include other things. Um, but, you know, a lot of people, when they hear this topic brought up are like, oh, I've, I've, I don't know anyone who does that. And statistically speaking, you actually probably do. You just don't know that they're, that they're engaging in it. So um, it's not only not a new thing, it's also not as, um, or I should say, it's a lot more common than most people realize and think. Um, and just one, one person that I'd love to um, highlight in terms of a scholar who I think could potentially be someone that folks might like to look into with regards to the history of polyamory and consensual non-monogamy is um, Dr. Kim Tallbear, who's an indigenous scholar, um, I believe based in Canada, not the U.S., but um, she has spoken about the role of settler colonialism in um, the origins of quote-unquote compulsory monogamy and the ways that Western, um, Western colonialism and imperialism uh, contributed to shifting uh, indigenous uh, relationship practices so that monogamy became the kind of compulsory um, standard that people were expected to abide by. So that's one scholar that I've I've particularly appreciated um, her work on. She's been interviewed on For the Wild and the All My Relations podcast, so people can check those out. Um, but yeah, that's, um, that's just kind of a commentary on the ways in which um, monogamy, com- monogamy is a paradigm that um, is supported by, you know, systems that are um, political and so and social. Um, and that's not to say that monogamy is bad um, and that people shouldn't engage in monogamy or anything like that. It's just to say that um, just because it's like the standard for our current moment um, doesn't mean that it's like the inherently right uh, way to be in relationship or um, that it's like the ultimate truth of like what is a proper relationship structure. It is monogamy is informed by a political and social structure, um, uh, you know, that surrounds it. I'm really curious about, you said it's 21% of the population and or around there. And I'm really curious if you have thoughts on why it is there's such a large percentage, but then all of us have this thought of, well, I don't, I don't know anybody. Do you think, I mean, of course there is a stigma. Do you think that is a large part of it? Yeah, definitely. Stigma is a huge, huge part of it. It's, you know, it's uh, I think it's a combination of stigma mixed with like, it is people's just like private love life and, and, you know, sex life sometimes. So um, it's not something that you necessarily just like talk about um, on average um, uh, in certain contexts, but, um, but the stigma that you mentioned is a huge, a huge part of it. Um, uh, And we can talk about this more, um, you know, throughout the interview, but when I was doing my research, I was interviewing a number of people again within a UCC context um, who are polyamorous or consensually non-monogamous and um, many of them uh, clergy, for example, who, 
um, have multiple partners and um, would really love for their multiple partners to be able to go to their church, um, you know, when they preach on Sunday, but they they don't because it's not clear if the church would actually allow them to continue being their pastor um, if it were found out that they were in a in an open or uh, non-monogamous relationship structure. A lot of people don't talk about it because there is a real fear of, for example, losing one's job or being disowned by families or um, outcasts from a community, including and especially spiritual communities where um, assumptions and sort of quote unquote rules surrounding sex um, can be very charged. Uh, so, so yeah, I mean, a huge reason why people don't talk about it is um, because there can be real risks associated with coming out as non-monogamous or polyamorous. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that. You know, I I have thought about this a lot and, you know, thinking about some of the questions that folks might want to ask about polyamory or consensual non-monogamy to deepen understanding, um, but they might be too afraid to ask those questions. They might feel like those questions are taboo. So I have prepped some of those <laughs> questions for you. And thankfully, a, um, a colleague of mine had uh, posted a, an Ask Me Anything about um, polyamory or consensual non-monogamy on their social media and so I, you know, I looked at some of those questions and pulled a few. So I think one of those big questions is that a lot of communication is necessary. We already talked about consent and agreement, um, but I feel like so much communication is necessary in any relationship. But my sense is almost even more so in consensual non-monogamy. So can you talk about that? What role does communication play in relationships such as these? Yeah, thanks. That's a that's a great question, um, and I think it actually links. It's linked to um, the conversation surrounding consent and agreement because consent is something that you say one time, and then it's like, all right, you have a, a like. It's like this for you know forever now. Like consent is always something that we have to revisit and check in and um, make sure. Like, okay, is the consent like? Do you still consent to this in the way that you said that you did before? Um, so, so communication does need to happen often just um, to ensure that people are still comfortable and consenting to the structure of relationships that they um, have been in. Um, and, and also it's, um, <laughs> there's, there's kind of like the just the logistical um, piece of it. Like, um, you know, if, if, if someone has more partners and they're going on a date with someone, they have to make sure that um, the partner that they might live with can feed the cats that night. <laughs> you know, it's just like some <laughs> basic, basic logistical stuff like that. Um, so communication is, uh, is helpful when it's um, consistent and regular and, as I mentioned, and also communication, I think, um, might be more pronounced in, in a number of concession non-monogamous partnerships because, as I said, um, with the stigma and um, the, with the stigma surrounding being in this type of relationship, there's a added stress um, to being in that, not stress due to the partners, you know, that are in it, but just by virtue of being in a stigmatized relationship structure, um, you, you might experience more stress than, say, average monogamous couple um, just doing their thing. So you have to check in um, a bit more frequently of like, are you okay with public displays of affection in this setting? Um, would you rather, you know, are you okay with me um, posting pictures of us on social media together? Um, what are your... Is it okay if if I meet your parents, you know, um, even though they know that you have another partner? You know, there's just because of the the stigma, there's there's just a lot of um, navigating that goes into, you know, how do we 
enjoy this relationship while also being cognizant of, you know, um, the ways in which stigma, you know, is real and can play into um, what one needs to take into account when when being in in a relationship structure like this. Um, so for all those reasons and, and more, um, communication is definitely a big and necessary part of um of consensually non-monogamous relationships. Um, but as you said, good communication is important with any, any relationship. <laughs> um, and I think something that is often, that could be said more often is that even people who are like diehard monogamous um, can still benefit from learning about the communication practices of people who are in consensually non-monogamous relationships. Because again, this this need to continuously revisit consent and revisit agreements and to make sure that um, the partner is comfortable with, you know, particular actions, even with regards to very basic PDA or public displays of affection and stuff like that. Um, you know, I think there's, there's a lot that monogamous people could really um, actually benefit from, you know, when, when hearing of the ways that many consensually non-monogamous folks communicate with, with one another. It does. It really does. Friends, I am breaking in here to tell you some really exciting news, which is that we recently hit 30,000 downloads. And with that announcement, we also got our first sponsor, which is so exciting. This episode was sponsored by Bliss Hot Yoga and Wellness, which is a local yoga studio here in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And even if you aren't local, keep listening to this. You can take most classes that Bliss offers via Zoom. So this is for you too. Bliss Hot Yoga and Wellness has some really incredible offerings like Yoga for Teens, Hot 26, Unheated Yoga, Vinyasa, Hit Classes, Burn with Becca, and so much more. And I can personally attest that teachers are amazing. The studio is just absolutely beautiful. There are showers for you so that you can rinse off. At the end of each class, you get a, an amazing cold towel to put on your face to cool down during your Shavasana time. It is just such an incredible place and a great community. And I even teach a couple times a week. So you can come take class with me in person or on Zoom. And you can find out more about Bliss Hot Yoga and Wellness on Instagram or Facebook and book a class today using the Vagaro app. That's V-A-G-A-R-O. And again, it is Bliss Hot Yoga and Wellness here in Kenosha. And you can find all of this information linked in our show notes. All right, friends, see you on your mat. Let's dive back in. I, I have a question for you that I, I didn't prep in the questions I sent you ahead of time, but you know, one of the, the goals of this podcast is to help people untangle some unhealthy theology that they experience. And so I'm curious, you know, we've talked about stigma a lot and I'm wondering, you know, what types of theology do we need to unravel or untangle in order to help reduce the stigma um, and, you know, broaden people's understandings of what relationships can look like? Do you have thoughts on that? Yeah, thanks. I, I mean, um, my mind went off in a few different directions when I heard the question. Um, you know, one of them just has to do with um, a lot of theology surrounding um, 
sex and bodies and, um, you know, what it means to be an embodied human who is sexual. Um, there's a lot of theology that really um, induces, I think, a lot of shame um, surrounding our our sexual lives. And, um, you know, this is even even for people who are monogamous, you know, you know, like um, uh, I know a lot of folks have had to, to do a lot of healing work surrounding their own relationships with their sexual selves because of um some of the things that the Christian church has, has taught them. Um, and that, uh, and I think healing theologies that, um, portray sex and sexuality as inherently like, um, either, either totally bad or, you know, like a lesser form of, of spirituality or something like that. Um, uh, healing, healing the ways in which sexuality has been pitted as something to be ashamed of. I think it can really help with the stigma surrounding consensually non-monogamous relationships, but also again, just like everyone's healing surrounding their sexual lives. I also think that there is, um, you know, theology surrounding um, love that that uh, can be can be revisited. And you know, for example, a lot of people when in my interviews, I ask people like, "What about your theology? Perhaps supports um, your your reasons for being either non-monogamous or your reasons for supporting non-monogamy?" Because you know, some people would express that they are monogamous, but they're comfortable with other people being non-monogamous. And many people talked about um, the the notion of the Trinity. Um, you know, being like, "Well, isn't the Trinity of?" I mean, not perhaps not in like a sexual way, but at least a example of uh, a form of love that encompasses more than just a, a dual, you know, like a, a two a two entity um, relationship. Um, and so, I think that there's there's a lot of rich areas where um, consensual non monogamy can actually really blend with. Um, a lot of teachings um, surrounding love, um, you know, love being abundant, love being um, uh, able to be shared amongst the many. Like there, there's a lot of places where I think we can revisit theological concepts um, that would help to uh, help people understand from a theological and a spiritual perspective why people might be feeling um, called to practice polyamory and non-monogamy or to identify as polyamorous or consensually non-monogamous. Um, because yeah, in my in my paper, there are a lot of quotes where people share some of their theological, um, the theological underpinnings of their consensually non-monogamous um, life. You know, as with anything, there are passages that people will point to for the opposite, right? The, the, the automatic verse that always comes is the, you know, the same one that people have used um, as like an anti-LGBTQ plus passage, which is, you know, what like God created man and woman and what God has put together, let no one separate, like this idea of one and one being brought together. Um, do you have thoughts on, on that, on how to kind of expand that understanding? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think first of all, it's very important, at least for me, it's very important to remember that there are a multiplicity of voices and stories within the Bible. Um, the, the, um, the Bible is not like a monolith, <laughs> at least in my, in my understanding of it. Um, and so um, there are, there can be passages that, that really, feel and, and seem to be very contradictory. Um, and so for me, when I think of uh, my, my own path as a, as a, as a Christian person, um, I think what, it, what is in the service of love, 
what is in the service of um uh, of, a, of a God that I understand to be a God of, of love. Um, and that might not be everyone's understanding of, of God, um, but, but at least it's mine. And so um, when, when I think of, you know, uh, passages that people use to uh, shame LGBTQIA plus communities or consensually non-monogamous communities, um, you know, for me, the question is like, is, does this, does this serve love? My, my answer to that would be like, no. <laughs> um, obviously, people have different opinions on that. Um, but, but yeah, I'm not sure if this is answering the question. But for me, it's always like, um, is this is this serving a God of love? If it's if it's not, then um, perhaps, um, uh, you know, perhaps maybe we should rethink how we're using it. Um, and and for consensual non-monogamy, I mean, again, the the whole kind of not the whole um, uh, enterprise of it, but um, a huge part of it is is the idea that um, love is abundant. That just because I love, um, you know, multiple partners, it, it doesn't mean that I'm I'm loving any of them any less. And um, love, at least in my understanding of it, is like a muscle. You know, the more you work it, the the more capacity you have to offer it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like, you know, it's, is this in the service of love or is this in the service of judgment and fear, you know, having, keeping that question sort of at the forefront. I appreciate you, you saying that question. I, I want to hold on to that. I think that's a really beautiful way of sort of evaluating our own understanding of scripture. Like, am I pulling out this passage to judge someone? Um, or am I pulling out this passage to like expand my understanding of love as you were saying? Mm. So I have a, another question. Um, and I think, you know, the roots of this question come back to what you were saying at the beginning that, you know, there's a lot of misunderstanding or at least correlation in people's minds between consensual non-monogamy and infidelity. Um, because the, the question that I think often comes up is how people in polyamorous or consensual non-monogamous relationships handle jealousy. Um, so do you have um, your thoughts on that? How do how do folks handle jealousy in these situations? it really depends on the person. Like every jealousy is an emotion that everyone experiences, but we don't all navigate it the same way. So um, it, it would be impossible and disingenuous for me to say the entirety of the polyamorous <laughs> or consensual non-monogamous community handles jealousy like this. Um, some people, you know, some people will talk about the feelings that they're having with the partner. Um, some people will talk about it in therapy. Some people might express it creatively, like through art or art therapy or dance or whatnot. Um, some people will do something, you know, entirely, entirely different. Um, and so it's, it's very dependent on the individual who's feeling it and the relationship structure that they're in as to what are the agreements that people have put in place for um, holding and navigating those kinds of emotions when they come up, because, you know, in many situations, they inevitably do. And it's part of the process. And a lot of um, people, at least the in, in my mind, like the healthiest forms of consensually non-monogamous relationship structures, do you have a conversations about, okay, well, if you're feeling like this, or if I'm feeling like this, here's what um, would be helpful, you know, for us to do. But that always looks different depending on the people, you know, and the relationship. Um, and, and I'll just close uh, my answer to this question by saying that Jealousy is certainly a thing uh, that happens in um, polyamorous and consensual non-monogamous communities and, and relationships. Um, 
And I think that's something that is also important to acknowledge, acknowledge is that um, a lot of people will enter into um, these types of relationship structures because they are excited at the possibility of experiencing more love for themselves, but they're also excited for their partner or partners to experience that for themselves too. So, you know, I think many of us have the experience of our best friend has suddenly met someone that they're like really excited about. And we're just like, Oh my God, I'm so excited for you. Like, yes, I'm rooting for you and this person, you know, like we have this, this excitement for our best friend um, because they're starting to see someone that they like. Um, In a lot of um, consensual non-monogamous relationships, that same feeling can be applied to our partner or to our partners um, just because that person is, you know, the person that we are married to or whatever, it doesn't change the fact that we're excited for them to be experiencing that kind of excitement for themselves. Um, so that's not to say that everyone is always super ecstatic when um, a partner of theirs goes to see someone else. Like there are definitely people who really do have to navigate jealousy and um, difficult emotions that come with seeing their partner, seeing someone else. But there's also a very common experience of being excited for a partner seeing someone else um, because you see that person's joy and that brings you joy. That's really beautiful. And I think, you know, similar to what we talked about with communication, people in monogamous relationships deal with jealousy as well, not on the same um, uh, context, but of course there is jealousy there. What do you sense are some of the biggest challenges for folks in consensual non-monogamous or polyamorous relationships? Uh, I think it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier with regards to navigating the stigma um, surrounding the um, being in that type of relationship, because very basic things like public displays of affection, you know, giving your partner a peck on the cheek when you meet, um, you know, outside your apartment or conversations surrounding wanting to meet um, a partner's parents or whatnot. Um, the, the, it, it, it's, it's challenging because um, you don't know how people will react if they, if they know what kind of relationship structure that you're in. Again, there can be very real risks of losing, losing one's job, losing one's community. Um, and that's, I'm not, I don't mean to paint a picture of like, <laughs> there are no happily public, you know, polyamorous folks out there or anything like that. Cause there certainly are. Um, but when it comes to what is like the, the biggest challenge, I, most people would think like, Oh, it has to be jealousy. But like, I personally think it's, um, it's not that it, it actually has a lot more to do with um, uh, one's ability to, to be, um, uh, fully oneself in, in a, in a community, uh, that you're not entirely clear on whether or not they'll accept you in your full, in your full self. And again, you know, like in, in the UCC context, one of our mottos is, um, all are, like basically all are welcome here. Um, but there are a lot of people for whom they don't feel that when they walk into the church with regards to this particular part of their life. Um, and to hear that statement being said, even though, they haven't really had a lot of evidence to point to the fact that they would be accepted if, um, if they brought their multiple partners to church with them. Um, That's there's a grief associated with that. Um, There's obviously stress associated with it. Um, And yeah, I would say that's, that's a challenge um, that people, people have to navigate uh, when they're in this kind of relationship structure. 
Yeah. Do you have a sense of what it would take for the church to be a more welcoming, open and affirming place for folks in non-monogamous relationship structures? Uh, yeah. I mean, a multiplicity of things I think could be very, very helpful. You know, one of the, uh, one of the things that like my own research showed, which was, um, uh, it was a very limited research. Again, it was just like a five, it was meant to be a five page paper. It turned into a 40 page paper, but I'm not a professional, um, data researcher. Like I, this was, this wasn't even a, a thesis dissertation. And yet, um, a lot of people were really hungry for the information. Like, I want to know, <laughs> like, you're the first person who's really done this kind of research. And I really want to know like what you found out. And I want to read stories about other people like me in the church or, um, or, I, or, or people who are monogamous who are just like, I just want to know more about this topic because um, there are more and more people who are coming to the church and saying that they're not monogamous and I have no clue. I have no clue what to do or like what not to do. Um, so I think uh, one, one important thing would be like very, very basic, um, like paid professional research um, just to see like how, how many people, and I'm talking, I mean, I'm talking from the perspective of being in the UCC, but I think this could apply to other denominations as well. Um, you know, whatever resources a church um, denomination has for research and just saying like, what are, our congregation's um, opinions and experiences um, with regards to this can be really helpful for determining like what support is, is needed, um, you know, done by professionals, a task force, that kind of thing. Um, but also certainly um, opportunities that allow for people to share their stories and their experiences um, without risk of losing, for example, um, standing uh, as clergy people um, or being ostracized by, by their communities. So, um, you know, kind of like anonymous story sharing could be helpful. Um, and also, uh, for example, for me, uh, when I was a member of discernment, I didn't come out to my committee on ministry um, just because I didn't really think, <laughs> I didn't really think of it at first. And then I realized, well, if I'm going to be ordained, I'm going to want my multiple partners at my ordination. And um, if that's going to be a problem, you know, if, if I, if I can't show up to my own ordination and my full self, if that's going to be a problem Then I need to bring this to my committee on ministry, um, or sooner rather than later. Um, and so I ended up coming out to my committee on ministry and what was helpful was that someone volunteered themselves to be a quote unquote cultural translator. So, um, someone who could be the person to receive questions um, that the committee might have about like what in the world is even consensual non-monogamy um, and me not having to be the one to answer the questions because, you know, I was, I was in a position of being a member in discernment being evaluated by this committee. So it, it could have been a tricky situation to have me be the one answering these questions. Um, so having more people who are willing to serve as quote unquote cultural translators or um, you know, just people who are conventionally non-monogamous and who are willing to be kind of, um, you know, ex explain what the what the topic is to people who don't really know um, is really helpful for folks who were, for example, in a position like me, who are pursuing ordination or um, looking for a church to become a pastor and, um, but who really probably shouldn't be the ones answering the question to the people evaluating them. Um, so, so I think that having more cultural translators would be really helpful uh, resource. And beyond that, just very similar to what um, folks have been doing with regards to raising awareness and support for LGBTQIA plus communities, um, you know, just providing 
resource and liter- resources and literature and um, opportunities for um, community for community to be built. Um, uh, all of that can be very helpful again in showing that like actually a large percentage of the population and our church population, um, at least in my survey, the numbers of people who said that they were engaged in confessional non-monogamy mirrored the general population numbers. Um, so it's happening in our churches um, already. Um, uh, having just having having ways for that to be more widely known and talked about. I love that. I have one more question um, before we go into our rapid fire. And I think this relates to what you're saying of, you know, having a cultural translator and why that is important. Um, but what questions should folks not ask when someone comes out as polyamorous or consensually non-monogamous? What are those questions that really like that is none of your business? <laughs> what are what are those questions? <laughs> yeah, um, I, I, I would say um, questions asking for details about people's sex lives, like, you know, oh, do you have sex with multiple people at once? Like, that's, that's just not like, unless unless you have a very close relationship with someone and they have consented to talking with you about their sexual life, um, you know, which can be the case, um, it, it's not appropriate really to ask anyone, monogamous or, 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 or non-monogamous, about the details of what they do in the bedroom. Um, you know, it's, it's, but, and a lot of people will ask those kinds of questions of consensually non-monogamous people just because they're curious and like it's under, you know, like the the curiosity is not the problem. It's just, um, uh, you know, you could, you could Google, um, your questions if you wanted to, if you really wanted to know some <laughs> of the answers. Um, so just not asking, not asking individuals about the details of their intimate sexual life. Um, unless again, they've already consented to talking about that with you, um, is, uh, is a good way to avoid any really awkward and <laughs> awkward moments and encounters. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Gabrielle, are you ready set for some rapid fire questions? Yeah, let's do it. If you could untangle one piece of bad theology for everyone forever, what would it be? Um, if it's okay, I'd love to answer that question from almost the inverse of it, which is like, mm. what's the piece of, of like good or nourishing theology that I would love to see more of? Is that, yeah. is that okay yeah. to answer that Please. way? Okay, perfect. Um, I would love for more people to trust and know and really feel in their hearts that the divine is within them, that the divine is something that we are carriers of. And that isn't me saying that we are God. Like, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that there is a spark of the divine, a fingerprint of God upon us. And I believe that we are part of God's dream made real that God dreamt us into existence for a reason. And we carry part of God in us as, as God's dream for, for existence. So mm-hmm. I would really, I would really love for more people to think of themselves as, as be, as, as beings who carry the divine within them. That's powerful. What do you love about Jesus? I love about Jesus. I love a lot of things about Jesus. Um, I particularly love how he, brings together things that a lot of people would consider disparate. So for example, he brings the divine and the human together. He brings um, gentleness uh, together with, with power. He brings together joy with grief. Um, He, he, to me, he walks between worlds and he has, he, he's a, he bridges worlds in a way that is 
really beautiful. And I, I appreciate that about him. Mm. Oh, I, this is where I'm like, I wish these were rapid fire because this is so good. Okay. <laughs> um, do you have a favorite verse or story in the Bible? Um, I guess I kind of have a constellation of favorite parts of the Bible. And those have to do with um, when Jesus expresses emotions that are commonly depicted or associated. Um, how to put this? I love the stories where Jesus expresses emotions that are often deemed to be negative in our current culture. So for example, when he expresses anger by flipping flipping tables in the temple, um, especially as a female socialized person who was taught to not express anger, I appreciate that Jesus expresses anger, even though he is um, a bearer of love and peace. I love the image of Jesus weeping at Lazarus's death, that grief is a valid thing to feel at, um, when experiencing a loss. And I also especially love when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The fact that Jesus experiences doubt and he's the son of God. Um, you know, I, I just love that. I love having um, as as a role model, um, someone who experiences the full spectrum of human emotions, not just the good vibes only stuff that we're hearing <laughs> a lot of these days, but also the really raw, difficult, challenging, heart-wrenching feelings that many of us experience. Thank you for saying that. Do you have a book? And this can be any book, like even when you read as a three-year-old, what is a book that changed your life? Uh, This might sound funny, especially given what I just said in the previous question, but um, a book that really changed my my life was a book called I Heard God Laughing, which is a translation of um, the Sufi poet Hafez's work by Daniel Ladinsky. And um, before I became a Christian in my uh, mid-20s, again, as a result of my time at a Zen monastery, I had really only ever heard of God as a punitive, judgmental, angry uh, being. And I was like, wow, that sounds not not very fun. Um, <laughs> and when I read this book, I heard God laughing. It was just full of poems about a God who was basically drunk on happiness and dancing through the streets and in love with with the world and with people. Um, and I I wept in the library where I stumbled upon this book because I was like, wow, I, I didn't know God could be like that. Um, and so that really changed my life. That's beautiful. I, I read another one of um, Daniel Ladinsky's books called Love Poems from God and a collection of a lot of ancient mystics and poets. And it was one, like I stumbled upon it uh, in Powell's bookstore in Portland, Oregon, <laughs> you know, love it just, like it, it caught my eye and yeah, I love that. I love that. Okay. What is something people often get wrong about you? Uh, people often assume that I'm an extrovert, <laughs> but I'm very much an introvert and I love my alone time. Um, and again, especially as a polyamorous person, people are like, Oh, you must be extrovert. And I'm just like, actually, no, I, I need a lot of alone time. Um, so yeah, starting tomorrow, I'm actually going on a solo silent retreat for five days in a little cabin in Vermont just to be by myself for a while. Cause I really love, um, I really love my recuperation and alone time. I I'm always blown away by people who can do silent retreats. I am an extrovert and I, even when I'm on an airplane and the people around me don't want to talk, as soon as I get off the airplane and my husband picks me up, I'm like a mile a minute in my speaking and he's like, take a breath. <laughs> So it, that is amazing that you can go and be be silent for five days. I'm in awe of that. Okay, two more questions. What do you know for sure? <laughs> 
I'm laughing because the answer is honestly very little. Um, every time I think I know something for sure, um, for example, I thought I knew for sure that I wanted to be an ordained pastor and God just made a really loving joke out of my grand plans and my certainties. And um, <laughs> I just find whenever whenever I think I have a hold on like, here's a certainty, it kind of goes away from me. Um, but I'm learning to really love that and love the way that mystery just like really richly weaves itself into my life. And I I, I think of mystery as the sibling of truth. And so um, I I don't know very much for sure, but I, I, I sure do love mystery. Mm. <laughs> I guess I'll put it that way. <laughs> Beautiful. Okay. Last question. What is filling your well right now? Um, I think the, what's coming up and wants to be shared here has to do with um, rest and dreams. Um, I, I'm someone who, who, uh, sleeps a fair amount in part because of some disabilities that I live with. Um, and I, I really love rest. And, and earlier this year, I encountered teachers who have helped me cultivate a very rich dream life that also informs my waking life. And um, I just love having access to the dream world and find so much nourishment there. And it feels very sacred, kind of like I'm getting letters or stories from God, like every time I, I shut my eyes. It's, um, yeah, like little little notes or little stories just from me, from from the divine through through the dream world. Oh, that's powerful. It's really beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Gabriella, for your time and for everything you shared today, for your willingness to be vulnerable and bring forth, you know, a, a conversation that I think is needed um, and a conversation that I think a lot of people shy away from. So I appreciate you being open and just diving right in. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for having me and for making space for this conversation. Really appreciate it. Thank you. My friend, thank you so much for joining us today. I am so grateful for you. Without you, this ministry would not be possible. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. The Lady Preacher podcast is part of a nonprofit called Dancing Pastor Ministries. And you can find us online at dancingpastor.org or join the community by finding us on Facebook at Dancing Pastor Ministries. If you would like to be a part of supporting this podcast, there are many ways you can do that without giving monetarily. You can share our posts on social media, send an episode to a friend, or just leave a review. If you would like to support us financially, you can do so at dancingpastor.org slash give. My friend, you are a gift. Thank you for being here and God bless.